like, I'm not disrupting a damn thing. Like all we're doing is finding efficiencies of things that have already been there and just asking the question, like, can it be used better? Can we do this better? Are we really being true to an audience? Are we really, when we say engagement, do we really mean it or do we really just mean marketing? Welcome to How Do You Like It So Far, a podcast about popular culture in a changing world. I'm Henry Jenkins. And I'm Colin McClay. This week, we are thrilled to have our friend Diana Williams joining us. She's an award-winning producer, co-founder of the recently launched company Kinetic Energy Entertainment. She develops IP and produces creative content for distribution across all kinds of storytelling media. She is a transmedia maven. In a past life, she was the uh, franchise producer and creative lead within the Star Wars universe at Lucasfilm, and she's now um, chairing a newly formed board for the Peabody Awards to think about new media. Um, And really throughout her career, she's done remarkable work at the forefront of emerging and established talent to figure out how to make all voices included in the the entertainment industry. So today we're gonna talk about what that practice looks like, uh, how to succeed in the entertainment industry in this crazy world that we live in now, about games and a new game that she's launched um, and uh, really how to get there from here. So um, couldn't be more excited about today's conversation. Folks, just wanna let you know that um, you might hear a sound at the beginning and that sound is not a problem in your earphones. That is a that is the sound of Diana rocking in her chair and the intensity of her speech and expression in our conversation. Diana, I'm so happy that you're here with us today. It's great to you know go from meeting you to be actually being able to talk in our podcast, which is awesome. And I, you, know, I, 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 you have so much knowledge and experience that I'm just excited to dive in and I guess um, you know, you've been in this business for like a couple of decades, despite your tender age, um, and have all these crazy experiences. <laughs> and I'm and and now are like in this, um, but feels like a dream company of the now. And I just tell us about Kinetic Energy and t- Entertainment, like how you launched this. What's the premise? Um, what are you going to make, and why, and for who are you going to make it? So, um, started the company in around March 2021. And um, I'm a science geek. And so I was looking for a name that has a little bit of science in it, but also uh, kind of expresses the way that I had been feeling over the last couple of years, which is um, I felt like I was getting comfortable and maybe a little bit lazy, like going along with like, okay, this is the way things are done. This is fine. This is fine. But it's not fine. It's something I always say is that um, a lot of words without an action plan is nothing but a tweet. So how, you know, was I just tweeting or was I actually going to do something? And I decided not to go back into a executive machine, uh, a studio, a streamer or whatever, and to just strike out on my own. I've had my own company before back in the you know heydays of, of the 90s and in indie film. But um, with this one, after having, you know, what, I've got 30 years experience now in this industry, having produced having developed, produced, and distributed across all platforms, I don't think I've missed anything yet. Um, I just wanted to put everything underneath one roof and see if I could really prove out what I've always have talked about, which is how can you build IP in this environment? Um, so with Kinetic Energy Entertainment, um, myself and my partner, Dario Dizani, who's the, the business side, on um, the creative side, but we both have enough, we, we, we have enough knowledge that we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble. We wanted to look at how our skill sets could come together, working with a creator who was also as ambitious um, to build ideas and stories into IP that then, if the story so warrants and has enough depth and breadth, can become a franchise. The move that every studio has made into streaming has fundamentally changed the way that A, they look at content, whether they want to look, whether they want to admit it or not, um, and fundamentally has changed the way they think about audience and also what drives them. I'm just looking at that whole landscape and figuring out, well, where do we fit in this? There's the, the gold rush into um, we want to have IP, 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 IP. That's what everybody's screaming about. But what they're actually saying is we want this story 
that has been expressed across at least one or two platforms that has a recognizable and gettable and marketable audience and has proven out hopefully profit, but more than likely revenue streams. Where you want to end up is having a studio or streamer buy your IP, then where do we as Kinetic land? And that is the development of IP. It's not about changing your creative to make nice with the audience. It is understanding what your creative provides that can attract an audience. And it's about universal themes. It's about characters we care about, fun events. But the, so the first question, just like as I'm hearing, it sounds like you're a creative-driven IP studio. Were you saying we're going to really focus on um, understanding what the voice of that creator is and the you know the story, and trying to figure out how they reach their audience, all the different ways that they can they have a crack at really building an IP franchise around it that has many tendrils, as opposed to you know, kind of just focusing excessively on that story and not thinking about how it's going to interact with its audience and the many tendrils it could have. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We Fish. are really, yes, no, that is correct. Um, that's <clears throat> when something comes in, no matter the form. So it can be a book, it can be an idea, it can be, you know, a noun and a verb. Um, hopefully in a couple of adjectives, uh, game. it doesn't matter. It's the first question becomes, first of all, are we value add to it? Cause there are, there have been a couple of projects that have come in and I'm like, okay, you, you actually have a super solid team. You guys are just not communicating. And so then I'll advise them and they go on their merry way. I'm not value add. You already have enough people. Um, but if we find that we are value add to it, we're identifying then what are they attempting to do? Some things have come in and I'm like, oh my gosh, your story is fantastic. You don't have a business structure or you're not sure who you want to go after. And so we talk about ABC is what the company is. We have audience, business, creative. I'm story focused. So it doesn't really, ma it doesn't matter to me what fancy schmancy, I've got a bunch of Oscars comes to me. Either I love the story and I think we're value add or I don't. And if those two things don't happen, it doesn't come into the company. Um, so the part, the big part of the DNA is unique point of view of the storyteller, universal themes, what drives us, what makes us want to watch, play, listen. Um, you know, really the, the depth and breadth of the story world and ambition. So those are the also the four pieces of the litmus test that we also will put um, a project through. And so if you can, if it passes that litmus test, do you think it has, or does it by definition have the potential to become in your parlance IP? Yeah, if the I mean, depth it... and breadth of the story is there, I think it can become IP, will it become franchise, that becomes a, a separate discussion. And there are some creators who come in who really don't want, they just want to make their film they just want their to make story, their television yeah. and and then if i am still value add to that then we'll come on just as as producers and it'll just be me producing and getting that set up i've got a couple of things set up in that way but it's also listening to what the creator wants to do because you can't drag a creator into thinking about <laughs> a franchise because then you're you end up with someone who feels like maybe they're being thwarted from what they actually want to do and if they yeah. may be okay for three months at some point that starts to boil up and that makes for a fraught relationship. I hear that. I mean, it seems like you want to, and also you can see that's a little putting the cart before the horse, right? If the point mm -hmm. is to really be story focused, but you start building in merchandising or or whatever, you know, those seem like they would undermine the integrity of whatever that idea is that you want to sort of see born before you kind of build stuff out from it. Um, so let, let's talk about how this thing lands, um, for instance, in this new game that you've been developing that's getting a lot of attention called Political Arena. And you've described it to me as emphatically not an educational game, but a game that might be educational or that you might learn from. So tell us about, like, what does it mean to make a game out of politics? We talk about where, you know, the, the media and journalists often describe politics in kind of like football-esque terms and, you know, play-by-play. -play, but does it, you know, how do you think about making a game out of our political system? And what's compelling about that? 
So what's so great about Political Arena, the creator of it, Elliot Nelson, comes from that area. Again, it's about that unique POV. And, his and he's, a, he's a journalist. He's a right? journalist. I mean, he's a political, he long-time political journalist. Mm-hmm. He's at Huff Post Hill. He's the author of Beltway Bible. And his perspective on politics a, is humorous. And what's great about humor is that it gets to the core and the nuts sometimes of the subject or of a character of an event. And he's laser focused on the intricacies and the oddness and weirdness of the democratic process. And sometimes the oddness and weirdness, sure, it can go to parliamentary process, but can also really go to just how odd human beings are. We bring our bizarreness into our workplace. And it just so happens that this workplace is politics and uh, DC and local politics and your community center, all of that. So we at Connecticut, we loved just his whole perspective. And when he first started talking about it, and he's been in development on this on his own since about 2018. I'm not a hugely political person, big P political. Um, I vote call it a day and I'm not going to talk to you about it. But when I really started listening to Elliot and started paying attention to the way that pundits, whether we're talking your CNN, your MSNBC, your Fox, anything, the way they talk about politics just reminded me so much of the way esports commentators will talk about StarCraft, you know, (laughs) and I just felt like, okay, so bottom line is elections are your boss battle. You've got, um, there's resource management, there's real-time strategy. It's all the things that we think about when we think about video games. And so it became just this interesting mesh of the two things, plus having someone who understands the ins and outs, upwards and backwards of politics. So... Um, so it worked completely for, you know, the kinetic litmus test and also just Ellie's just a bundle of fun. There's scavenging, there's subterfuge, there's all those things that just make types of thrillery games fun. Um, plus it's in a setting that people are familiar with. And so we have our ideas as to what goes on in the setting of DC. We're just running people through, literally through campaigns. And video game players know what a campaign is. Well, we have actual campaigns that you can campaign through as an event. Um, so it's just something that feels natural. We we really think that it will be first and foremost fun. I again, I talk a lot about and, and Colin is this from when we when we first met that I'm in the business of entertaining that's what the entertainment does entertainment industry does and i'm a part of that industry so i believe in entertaining but also i believe in doing no harm and also that if you really think about your story and you think about those universal themes which are just about the human condition then that can allow for learning it can allow for that person that is playing listening watching reading to question the world around them, to question themselves, to just think about themselves within their own setting. And and if what you're making allows that to happen, then I feel like you've done your job in two ways. You have entertained and you've allowed someone to kind of take maybe another step that they wouldn't have taken in their own lives. And so we think that the, that the game can do both those things, but first and foremost, entertain. Yeah, I'm reminded of an experience I had in the early, the mid '90s, mid '80s. My son was a avid gamer. Uh, I brought home this Simpsons campaign simulator game, which is an early, early prototype of what you guys are able to do in a much more sophisticated way. He took it upstairs as an early high schooler. He played for hours, and then he came downstairs and started watching the news and <laughs> pointed out on CNN that. Uh, at that point, Clinton was in Ohio, Gore was in uh, Wisconsin, uh, 
anyway, pointing out candidate by candidate, state by state, and saying each of those states has a high electoral college value because and the game. And he started to map instantly what he learned in the game onto watching television. Uh, it was a spectacular example to me. So the following day, he takes it to his high school, and the high school librarian has a policy that you can use educational software during the during your lunch break, but you can't play games at school. And she took one look at the Simpsons on the label and said, you can't bring that game to school. So that's what motivated me when I was at MIT to get involved in games-based learning initiative. This recognition that it can be totally entertaining, can be totally engaging can be a game, but that the power of that for learning is extraordinary. And I think, you know, the campaign simulator just happens to be the genre that motivated me to get involved in at games and education research so many years back. So I was excited seeing the publicity for this game. I think it's time to bring it to another generation. I just, the dance that you have to do between entertainment and education, working in this space is still striking 30 plus years after that encounter where the librarian wouldn't let a campaign simulator into the school library. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting dance. And to your point, I think it's a shame that it is still a dance. I think that there are projects that are education first, and that is, and that should be a category and and it makes sense. But I think to dismiss something because we don't understand it and don't see that the layers and levels of what it can do, generally, generationally, I think and hope that will start to peter out, but it may not happen in my lifetime. <laughs> I just I just know like how I feel when I play games. And I think that by dismissing games as being only one thing, unless it is education first, I think is dismissing the fact that human beings are naturally curious. And if you put enough I'll just say the word smart threads and what you're creating, those that are super curious will pick them up and want to pull on them in maybe an area that is not where they first found it. So that is whether you jump onto Wikipedia, whether you find a book, whatever it is, I want to be able to provide those threads and what I'm making for someone that does want to follow their curiosity. So I think to dismiss games as not piquing someone's curiosity is just to a generation's folly. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems a little bit like um, documentaries versus scripted entertainment and seeing documentaries as, be, you know, documentaries, seeing them as the gold standard, but recognizing they reach far fewer people and, mm-hmm. you know, may, may reach the converted primarily and not spur new interest and, and not acknowledging the power of a really compelling drama, which could drive you to all, you know, to, to, towards the documentaries or towards other firms of learning, and at one level. But then the other thing that to me is so interesting about games is just all this, the sort of skills and dispositions that you learn by playing a game. Right? It's just more active, say, than um, scripted or than 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 a, than a movie. Um, so I guess I, I'm I'm compelled by this, and I, and I don't know how you balance that with like there's a there's a quote in. Uh, maybe the Washington Post piece um, from Elliot that, you know, about the insanity of politics of like, sometimes it is so insane that any decent editor would just redline that, would say like, no, you can't put that in a game or a movie. And yet you're dealing with like, you know, this system, right? A complex system that is represented by the game. And that's super powerful for understanding unseen linkages and being able to incorporate, as you all, it sounds like you're doing, incorporating all kinds of the elements of politics into a game. Um, in, you know, in one system, but also being able to add really nutty stuff because that's how politics works, right? Chock full of nutty stuff. And I, and so to me, it feels like you get a lot of room to play with as, you know, the the core of how it works, but also being able to introduce all kinds of entertaining, silly, crazy ideas in a way that can, you know, provoke kind of joy and humor and, you know, all the other things that we like about an adventure. 
Yeah, and I think we need environments to also move and change to, to be able to make something make sense. So this kind of game maybe wouldn't have been so understandable just eight years ago. But what has occurred over the last five years publicly, what we've seen between, you know, all the social medias, C-SPAN, but also what's happening in Europe. I mean, like some of the parliamentary stuff that we see that comes over as a clip or comes over as something that, you know, that John Oliver comments on, we're seeing it across the board. And I think it, I think that it lends to the authenticity of what we're telling. So it'll, I think will be harder for someone to say, oh, that doesn't make sense. That would never happen. And I just point to like January 6th. That's, I mean, that's an event that we can make that an event. We can literally change the tone of the game by playing off of what happened in the United States on January 6th. So, you know, or, you know, so I do think that, the way that the world has moved and the fact that more and more people are seeing things that they wouldn't have gotten before. Like, sure, we now know about everything that happened in Tammany Hall, but how much was known during that time by the public or was he just an awesome politician, you know? So, but now we are learning these things in real time um, so the audience, the fans, the players, they're more aware of, oh, this crazy event that they threw into this game. Yep. I wonder if that was built off of something that actually happened. Well, it's, it's interesting that at one time it would seem cynical to see politics as a game, but today it implies politics is more rule governed than in fact <laughs> the system currently is. At least in your version, it's a game that hasn't been broken yet. Uh, You know, but, you know, one of the lines that I keep hearing when I read through the publicity and interviews you've gotten is that um, is the uh, idea that it's not an entertainment company's job to teach us civics. But the reality is that it's no one's job today to teach us (laughs) civics because the civic teachers have already lost their jobs and it's largely out of education and we have political leaders who don't understand how the Constitution works. So in that context, what kinds of base level understanding of politics do you need to begin to play a game like this? And if you're working in a vacuum without civics education, as is absent from many schools across the country, doesn't it in fact become how children learn what politics is uh, and what it operates? And that's a kind of strong responsibility to think about what version of politics is being put out there. What won't be fake in the game, and what we're not going to skirt around is the actual process, the actual truth of the process. The people may be nutty and change around and events may be hyperbolic um, to make sense for a game, but the actual process will be sped up, of course, because we know how long things take in DC, except when we don't want them to, when we want them to actually take the process they take, we then somehow speed them up. So we'll speed things up, but we're not going to ever conflict with what is the reality of the political system, how votes work, how elections work, all those sort of things. So that's where I, that's where we're not shirking responsibility. And I think, you know, the reason why we keep saying that we're not an educational game is because that just puts a different type of responsibility onto this game that we did not sign up for, nor do we want. We Again, we want this game to be entertainment focus, entertaining, leaning. <laughs> but you can do that and still tell the truth of the setting that you're in. Yeah, I mean, it seems like two different angles to approach it from. If you approach it from an you know educational, air quotes, like a pedagogical angle, you're doing, you know, schoolhouse rock or whatever, you're kind of, you know, listing the nuts and bolts of how it works as opposed to being experience and play centered that is constrained by having to operate within the rules, the way the system works. Right. And it, to me, that feels like I, I always, my analogy is always like, well, if, if you're going to 
if you want to write a book, you don't start by teaching someone how a word processor works, right? You ask what the story is, and then you learn about the rules. And I think in this, the same thing is like, you want to win the game. So you, as a result, you figure out how the system works and how to, and you might explore how you operate within that system. And that to me feel that sort of, uh, that orientation, I would argue in many instances is way more educational because you have to figure it out, right? You, you're unraveling the story of a complex system and seeing how all those different pieces might come together as you're trying to accomplish your goal in the gameplay. Um, so to me, I, I, that that feels like a really powerful way to to approach it and, and important if you want it to be fun. I look at the same as like, I'm on the um, advisory board of the Science Entertainment Exchange, it's part of the National Academy of Sciences, which is about, hey, film and television, Maybe don't suck so much at science. You know, maybe you can actually have some real science and still have a good story, still have that asteroid hit that planet. But you know, maybe use actual words. Maybe you know, work a little bit of work a little bit of real science in that. Um, maybe by doing that, we can inspire the next generation of scientists across all the sciences. STEM, hooray! So. You know, that's kind of the same approach we're taking. You can still have a lot of fun and still actually have real facts, real truth in what you're making. It just takes a little bit of research or somebody with on the team that has a knowledge base. We have that with Elliot. So, yeah, I just I think sometimes in our pursuit of being capital C creative, we twist things around that we shouldn't. And look. I say this as a huge fan of Fast and Furious, but everything in Fast and Furious goes against <laughs> science. There's no such thing as physics in that film. And that's okay. That's the world they have set up. That's that's their rules. I just go with it because at no point have they said, we're going to have real science in this. That's fine. But if you're going to posit to me that you have this scientist and this and that, then you better have something real in it. Um, something that I can pull on if I, if I so choose to as opposed to then you end up with films or games or whatever, and someone decides to pull on whatever the creator has laid down and they find it to be false. And therefore now, maybe I'm not so much trusting the authenticity of that creator. So we, you're, you're, develop, you're developing this game. It obviously speaks to the moment. Uh, we could drill on it again at great depth. How do you get this to market? What are the mechanisms or tools you've been using to begin to build out the foundations to support a game like this? Um, so again, with video games, since it, you know, this is going to be a PC based game to take anywhere from two to three years from, you know, idea to finish. Ellie's been working on this, thinking about this since about 2018, 2019. Um, so we're looking at, at the very least right now, 15 months till we get to a public slice. So our idea being that that gives us time to start to build market and to think about the audience and start to talk to people who are interested in this subject and who are really curious about like, wow, you're making a game with the setting being, you know, small P politics. So uh, part of it was a, you know, Elliot's got a, you know, he's got his fans because his book is hilarious. Everybody loved that column. You know, he does try to present it without a bias one way or the other. And so with that, we can start to build, well, what would a social campaign look like? What are other ways in which we can start to talk about this game that could feel in-world or out-of-world? So in-world, as in the real world, we've got Fox and MSNBC, C-SPAN. So we would have the same within our game world with our own different, you know, Elliott News Network. And uh, so we're going to be building that out. You know, are we going to also go then take it into YouTube or Twitch? So that's what we're thinking about. There's natural podcasts. There is um, Elliott interviewing various people about gaming and politics. So not about interviewing them for politics. Goodness knows there's enough of those already as podcasts. So how are we <laughs> twisting the form and format of audio that still feels authentic to the story world that we'll be telling in the game? So that's what we'll be doing in the meantime. That also starts to build out what is 
a type of marketing strategy that is not just you know buying billboards, uh, but it allows us to have engagement with the audience who is going to be hopefully our fans. Right now, we have a really beautifully active uh, Discord for Political Arena. The people in there are really smart because they're talking about the game. They're talking about what the game can be and why they're interested in it as a game. So far, fingers crossed, has not devolved into, you know, people fighting over capital P politics. It has been really about the game and Elliot is fully and fully and authentically engaged in that because there have been some really great people in that discord. And so that's great because these are this is allowing us to have the conversation as opposed to marketing, which is one way communication. This thing is great. Please buy a ticket. We want to be engaged with the audience in this early stage. I mean, that to me sounds uh, kind of the exact, well, more or less the exact opposite of the way a studio might approach this creation of IP or of a new you know, platform where you're, in some sense, you get the opportunity to do lots of experimentation and have fun with it, like the ad on, you know, the attack ad on Kickstarter. Political Arena, what's it hiding? A game that lets you be a political hotshot and experience the high stakes world of American power. But is that what real Americans want? Which is awesome. You get to make a thing like that and see what that feels like. Or as you say, both in and out of game activities that you get to see what, you know, what has purchased, like what, you know, what, what, uh, uh, has truck with the audience, but also it, it feels to me like a little bit of blog to book where you get to kind of put ideas out there without having them already coded in, where you get to get feedback and incorporate new things in a way that are more you know, likely to kind of help you have a better product in the end, but also to build that kind of loyalty with a much more participatory audience rather than the passive receptors, the ones who are actually helping you, you know, figure out what the dynamics are like. So that, that to me feels like a radical departure from the way that we, at least the way that I think of most big, you know, studio or other kinds of developers. Is that, is that like a trend? Is that where things are going or are you guys breaking the mold or how, what is that? Um, the way I've always talked about kinetic is that I don't feel like, and we've had people approach us about this and saying like, oh, you're disrupting. And I'm like, I'm not disrupting a damn thing. Like all we're doing is finding efficiencies of things that have already been there and just asking the question, like, can it be used better? Can we do this better? Are we really being true to an audience? Are we really, when we say engagement, do we really mean it or do we really just mean marketing? So we just want to be truthful to what we are doing and active participants in what we are doing and pushing against something that starts to feel too false, too by rote, and not, not, not fulfilling the promise of the creative that we're involved in. So that also to me feels like maybe a difference, and this is an area that you have a lot of experience of, you know, between starting with a big body of IP uh, and a big known audience versus uh, a not a body of IP and not a known audience. And if you were to be working, you know, so like, you know, within the Star Wars canon or Marvel, you know, cinematic universe or whatever, you're sort of, you, it's an expansive space, but there are real limits and expectations to what you can do and how you can do it and expectations uh, within the organization, but also within the fan base, right? And we've seen what it's looked like to introduce new characters and how people lose their minds for one thing, one reason or another. Whereas you're in a kind of a greenfield of, you know, this new territory where you can be more exploratory and not limited by past, you know, decisions. And I wonder, so I wonder if you could speak a little bit about what's, the, you know, like the difference of creating a new space versus serving that existing one and trying to build that out and the sort of challenges and opportunities as you see them. Yeah, both have advantages and disadvantages. So, okay, if we want to look at the new space of like, all right, I want to build an IP. That is money and time. And 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 basically uh, a really strong stomach because you're going to try a bunch of things. They're going to fail. There's going to be fights. You're going to realize that, oh my God, this character I love actually kind of sucks. Um, oh, we, we have brought on this partner to help build out this platform and they sucked. Like, <laughs> so it's just rife with problems, but, but then on the plus side, 
you you own it. It is yours. It is yours to really be full body involved with to figure out how to make it into a thing. And in success, it, there's just nothing better, something that you have built yourself. But it takes, again, time and money. And and a lot of people don't have both of those things. I and mean, especially if you're coming into it and you don't have a trust fund or you don't have some rich backer, and that means you're probably also working part-time, full-time. So that's the plus and minus of building your own thing. Then with a IP that is, I would say, 10 plus years old, you have your audience. They're identifiable. You know what levers to pull to get them. You know that it just becomes marketing more than anything else. But anything that is 10 plus years old, it's hard to shake and move because the audience, to your point, has their expectations and they have their loves. Don't kill off someone they love, man. That is <laughs> no bueno. Um, you end up with a, a rather defined creative sandbox sometimes that is hard to bust out of. I mean, look, there's a book going on right now around uh, about Black Panther. Um, and T'Challa and what's going to happen. And look, it's tough. And I think it is, there are people who always do want to innovate. It's just really hard. And once that money starts rolling in in a certain way and your EBITDA and your quarterly statements rely on that money rolling in a certain way, there's not a lot of incentive to shake that up because your business has been built around X amount of dollars coming in every mm. month. So why rattle that cage? So can uh, IP uh, franchise emerge from an independent artist with a vision? I mean, that seems to be the proposition you're making here. What allows, what, what does an independently produced franchise look like in the modern, at the current moment? If you have the financial backing and the strategy and the right team in place, you can probably express it out between two and three various media platforms to show the expansiveness of your story world. Again, it all comes back down to story. Either your story can handle being a franchise or it can't. I think we need to maybe redefine what we think about as how franchises start because we have been, generally speaking, used to them coming off of theatrical films. Hmm. Star Wars started off as a theatrical film. Film. Um, people tend to, I don't think they do with Harry Potter. Like, you know, Harry Potter started as a book series and everybody loved that book series and became a beloved um, film series and then everything after that. Um, we all know G.I. Joe started off as toys first. Um, Transformers, toys first. But when we're looking at like the modern, that's been really interesting. I'm actually working on, because why wouldn't I do this? A database of all franchises. And I'm looking at them and I'm grading them from one to 10 to say like, just to look at a, what are, what are things that affect something becoming a successful franchise? It can be the distributor that you're with. Cause sometimes if you, you know, start off as a book, then the book is bought for adaptation by a studio that perhaps is only, quote unquote, only a studio. It doesn't have the other divisions. So then therefore they've got to license it out. You end up with two to four bad license, bad licensees, then you don't go anywhere. Perhaps Story World doesn't lend towards being broader and bigger. Um, for some, Hunger Games could be that example. Sat a studio that was a studio, you know, just again, just I, I'm doing air quotes, just a studio, mm -hmm. Lionsgate. Technically, Story World's kill, kids killing kids. Can that be a theme park? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it would be exciting. I would like be summer camp. For it. Not gonna lie, I think it'd be amazing, but perhaps not so parent friendly. Um, but you know, it's been the book series. As far as I know, I don't. I don't feel like I've seen the video game around it. I don't know if I've 
has there have there been comic books? So again, if we're looking at if those are things that make a franchise, then is that what kind of franchise is that considered? Is it a franchise just across? So then is that sequels? Like I think we do conflate the two words and make mm. them synonymous. And I again personally, my opinion, they are not synonymous. Sequels are on one platform telling that story, whether linearly or circularly across one platform. Um, Fast and Furious is a great example of that. Um, super duper duper successful, despite the loss of physics. Super duper successful. But then you have then franchise to me, and franchise has gotten kind of a bad rep. It's just the word that's two syllables that is merely a business tool, a tool that allows a story world to be accessible by an audience where the audience is and trying to break down friction points so that the audience can enjoy and love the thing that it wants to love. So a franchise that allows for there to be audio, animation, live action, theme parks, video games, on, 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 on. That's my definition of a franchise. It's just a tool that allows me to have various entry points into a story world. How do we look at franchise now? How do we think about IP? What are the various and new ways in which they can start that is just different from what we've been used to, which is put out a movie, the movie made money, now I'm gonna license things out and hope that the licensees don't mess up what I built on the film. So, so one of the, like, the premise of this podcast is that um, popular culture and social change are in, deeply interwoven. Um, and I guess I wonder how you see with both these resources and limitations, the industry being open and able to productively engage that or, or not. Does it get me in trouble? I don't know so much <laughs> if the industry is open. I think the industry is being forced to be open because the mm -hmm. audience is like, nah, brah, this is not working for us anymore. <laughs> and bottom line, the industry does not exist without audience, period, end of story. And to think anything else is like super duper hubris. With every pop of technology, the audience has gotten more agency. And so we talk about content Everyone's like, content is king. And I'm like, yeah, but the audience is little finger. Audience runs us. And to only just talk about audience in these monolithic, depersonalized terms, we'd say demographics, we say 18 to 34, but we don't talk about them as people. And I just think it again is to the hubris of this industry. And so the people have spoken. And the people who have always been there, you know, young kids of color who've been playing video games from the start, didn't have a voice, didn't have a voice. And now they're just like, huh, how come I can't have a different skin tone choice? Why, why, you know, why does this white character have like a billion different hairstyles and yet the black character does not? Why are there no Asian characters? Like they're asking for things because they are paying. And so they're like, if I'm giving you cash, why am I not being represented? And so I do think it is the audience that is that is asking for things. But I think also the audience has become the creators. The audiences are, are now starting to get into the ranks of the gatekeepers. And that is also what is forcing change. Um, but it is it is hard, especially for anyone coming in entry level into the industry who maybe are coming in with the vim and vigor of wanting to reflect the world that they either came up in or reflect the world um, that they are a part of or that they're seeing. So, I mean, look, I just got out of a meeting where literally this guy at the studio was still upset that DVDs were not a thing, that he just couldn't sit back and rely on that number to make his quarter look good. And I was like, dude, that ship has <laughs> sailed. Like, wow. And he was still upset. Now he's also, I would say, probably 15 to 20 years older than I am. But again, he came up at that time in which DVDs were a thing. And now that DVDs are not a thing, haven't been, you know, narrator's voice, haven't been a thing for a long time, but 
he had to adjust his work methodology, he had to adjust his quarterly statements, he had to adjust his cost center, he had to adjust everything because the money he was used to coming in wasn't coming in anymore. And now he's got these kids, these whippersnappers who are like, well, I don't want to pay for this. So again, that these are the things. So that's, and I think that's part of the reason why change is really slow. I mean, I still have people saying to me that, well, you know, black movies don't travel. They don't do well overseas. And I'm like, well, maybe because they're also, you don't put the marketing to it because you've been taught that yes. these films don't do well overseas. And therefore, if they don't do well, why would we spend against something that won't bring money in? Again, that's a pervasive attitude. And that is how that's still. So what we hope is that that can be, you know, quote unquote, bred out with every new generation coming in. But if we then dampen that enthusiasm, that knowledge base that comes in entry level by our experience and our biases, then we're going to end up with the same crap over and over and over again. So, you know, I am hopeful that that's not going to happen. I'm hopeful that this that the audience that are now becoming creators and are becoming executives and that are coming into being gatekeepers are bringing with them that fury that they had as an audience person asking why they were not reflected in the stories that they wanted to be a part of. Well, that seems like an optimist, uh, a, a guardedly optimistic note to to wrap on. You know, in in a world where it feels like the sky is falling, you know, that image of both some folks aging out and getting you know new blood in, and with that, you know, kind of the passion for the world that we want to see and the people and the stories that we want to see. Um, so I'm I'm excited to, uh, to see what's next. I try to stay excited. I mean, I'm thinking my whole company, my livelihood, my very non-existent 401k on this working. I'm banking on that we can build IP that doesn't cost mid six figures. I'm really building on the idea that the audience is there and just wants to find something exciting to love that speaks to them where they are, but also ask them to start to take steps in other areas as well. That's, that is what I'm hoping for. And I'm just trying to build a smart business around that hope so that it becomes strategy and good execution, both creatively, business side, the tech side, and that we're just always ambitious as fuck. That's it. Well, we wish you the best of luck. I always learn so much from your range of culture, economics, a little bit of politics, but mostly entertainment. <laughs> uh, and uh, really enjoyed this discussion. So thanks for joining us today. Whew. Take a breath, listeners. <laughs> She is a force of nature, a gale force of nature. Uh, but there's a lot of incredible thought in that. And, and she has always been someone that I turn to for the latest insights about transmedia, media franchising, creativity in the industry, and fan relations. She's one of the good guys in the industry. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this conversation and listening to it again, it was just as ever, kind of like all kinds of additional pieces came out to me. Um, but I really, and, and this is what I, we spoke of when we first met was really just the, the way that Diana brings business into the social change conversation. Um, and so being so important to how these, you know, these, uh, these really rich texts get created and the constraints and opportunities. And, you know, as in her telling kind of the, these intersections of creativity and passion for the story and all that goes with it and and the sort of the complexity but also how that intersects with business and the business of in investing in these kinds of ideas that can become bigger things and and the and the sort of the, the leadership and the balancing of those forces that it requires and the way it plays out at scale so i mean i heard all that you know sort of the richness of those those dynamics and then i love the way that you brought 
um, sort of learning and uh, civic, especially, well, learning generally, but also especially around civics into the conversation that just shows that complex stew of, of, of forces and opportunities and, and, you know, what it takes to, to really make those things sing, to mix the metaphors endlessly. No, I think as we get into the deep stages of neoliberal capitalism, we have to depend more and more on the corporate sector to do educational work because we've gutted public education, especially where knowledge of civics and humanities concern. And it takes us back to our discussion of art education just a few weeks weeks ago. Uh, this is important. I know that many of my progressive academic friends are opposed to capitalism in any and all of its forms, but if we can't pay for it, we can't make it. And I think understanding the business factors that impact social change is part of understanding what it means to do popular culture in a changing world. endlessly appreciative of our amazing colleagues at USC and in particular at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Deeply indebted to our thought partners and sponsors in this, the MacArthur Foundation. We want to thank our producers without whom none of this would be possible. To New Hand Public Relations, Class of 2023. Claire Fogarty, Journalism, Class of 2024. L. Davidson, Journalism and Creative Writing, Class of 2022. Daniela Velasco, Master's Student in Cinema and Media Studies, Class of 2022. Taylor Martinez, Cinema and Media Studies and African American Studies Double Major, Class of 2023. Sophie Maggi, Annenberg Innovation Lab. I know you love listening to our voices, but you should also check us out on social at H-D-Y-L-I-S-F underscore pod on Instagram and Twitter, and our website, howdoyoulikeitsofar.org. Our home base at the University of Southern California sits on the territories of the Tongva, Keech, and Chumash peoples. We thank them for their stewardship and honor their past, present, and future contributions.